The information contained in this podcast is general in nature and is not to be taken as financial or personal advice. It does not consider your objectives, financial situation or needs. You should consider whether this information is suitable for you and your personal circumstances before acting on it. Hi, and welcome to The Home Run, your guide to buying your first home in Australia. On this show, I'll walk you through the home buying process from every angle. We cover the steps to take, the pitfalls to avoid, and the answers to all your questions you've been dying to ask. No matter what stage you're at, you'll learn everything you need to know about buying your first home. I'm your host, Michael Nasser, and I'm a mortgage broker at Lens Street, and I really love helping people buy their first home. Frank Volantic is a director of Advantage Property Consulting and is a buyer and vendors advocate with over 20 years of experience. You may also recognize him as one of the superstar buyer advocates from the TV show, The Block, where he has represented clients in every single season to date. In today's episode, Frank breaks down all things purchase price negotiation. He'll explain everything from why you might consider trying to negotiate a purchase price to the due diligence required to maximize your chances of success. Plus, Frank shares his number one tip for anyone looking to negotiate that could just help you secure your dream property for less. Let's jump in. All right, Frank, welcome to the show. Thanks, Michael. Thanks for having me. Just to get started, um, it's always nice for our listeners to understand who we're talking to and a bit of insights as to their background. And I want to talk to you about your property career in a second. But before we get into that, you didn't actually start out your career in the property industry, did you? No, very different industry. I'm actually a qualified secondary PE teacher, believe it or not. When I graduated, there were no teaching jobs. So I ended up working in the fitness industry and sports management industry for about 12 years. So I started as a gym instructor and then progressed my way through various management roles. And at the same time, I was playing soccer semi-professionally as well. So I was very much into sport and fitness. So how the hell I got into real estate is a really good question, Michael. But my mum encouraged myself and my sisters to invest in property. So I bought my first home, uh, like your first home buys was a bit of a challenge back then. And I bought it when I was 25 in East Brunswick in Melbourne. And then I had five investment properties by the age of 30. So I, I really enjoyed it. I got a real buzz out of it. I started my buyer's advocate business back in 2000 and uh, I'm still going today. What was it about real estate that made you go, you know what, this is what I'm going to do. This is for me. I just love property when uh, so I love going through properties. So I, I got the bug, you know, once I bought my first property, then I bought my second and, you know, bought five in five years. Um, I just got the bug for it. And I think because I was good at it and I enjoyed it, it was more like a, a hobby versus having a job. And I, I still see myself living out my hobby, helping clients, but I talk the talk and walk the walk and buy my own properties, do my own developments as well. So, you know, it started as a hobby and, and it's become a great full-time career for me and um, something that I'll, I'll do until I die, I think. So you launched your business. It was as a property uh, buyer's advocate, also known as a buyer's agent in New South Wales. But I imagine when you did this, I'm not sure what the year would have been, but it would have, you would have been one of the first buyer's agents or buyer's advocates around at the time. Is that correct? Yeah, that was it back in 2000 in Melbourne. I had hair back then, but um, it was quite hard at first because no one knew what you did. You would always get asked, what do you do? You get asked, and you know, why would someone pay you a fee when um, I can buy a property for myself? So that was the common hurdles you were having that people would like, well, why would I pay you to do it when I can do it myself? So it, it was pretty tough at the start. You had to work quite hard to get clients on board because they 
didn't know what a buyer's advocate are. You know, that changed a lot over the years and every year after that, there are more buyer's advocates or buyer's agents emerging and um, I think it, you know, changed considerably in 2013. I, I was on the Block TV show for the first time and uh, that profile that buyer's advocates got on the show there and have got now for the last 10 series has been amazing. So initially, it would have, you would have been a pioneer, really, getting into it. But there were certain mechanisms, and reality TV was one of them. And you've mentioned some of our listeners might recognise you from the show The Block, and that definitely catapulted the industry and explained what buyers advocates do or buyers agents do. So, yeah, if it's okay to talk about that, that'd be great. So, how did you first get involved with The Block, and tell us about that experience? I actually was proactive. I knew that The Block was coming to Melbourne. They were in Sydney, and uh, they had a failed series in Sydney, and they were selling these uh, houses in Cameron Street in Richmond. There were four selling agents in Melbourne. So I was proactive. I rang all the selling agents and said, if you've got any buyers that don't want to get their mugs on TV, because not everyone wants the world knowing what they're doing, I'll bid for them and I won't charge them a fee. And I ended up getting my first client, Glenn Catsano from um, Hawking Shoot at the time, referred his uh, his client Effie to me. And we ended up buying Polly Moss's house. That was the only one that sold that night at the Fitzroy Town Hall. I can remember it. it was uh, all the others passed in. And that was obviously the first experience. And then I proactively did that the next few years, contacted the agents and was bidding on, on the show. And then I got asked to go on as a guest judge. And, you know, I've been on every series, you know, taking buyers through, going through with the buyer's jury. And so it's been great profile for us. Is the auction process at the block different to an everyday auction? Oh, yeah, definitely. Well, when you've got, you know, cameras and you've got like 5 million people watching that auction the next day, it's not a, an auction on the street where, you know, there's 10 people there. So it is different, as I said. It's uh, like a, a cauldron in there sometimes. It's like, you know, you might have 50, 60 buyers in the lounge room with cameras and um, you've often got five bidders there. The auctions are really competitive, whereas... Often auctions, you, know, you might turn up an auction and, and not have any bidders or one bidder, but the block auctions tend to always attract more bidders and more interest. You're generally up against, you know, four to five bidders there. It's quite different to the way that we would normally buy property because uh, as buyers advocates, I buy about 90% of our properties off the market. We try and buy properties before they get listed and where we can buy them without competition, where we're not up against four or five other bidders. Something you've mentioned there, which leads nicely into our topic for today or what we're going to spend some time talking about now, you mentioned that the majority of your purchases are done via off-market transactions. And I imagine that's an, a negotiation sale process, as a, obviously, as opposed to an auction process. And today we want to spend a bit of time talking about negotiating and negotiating when it comes to you know private treaty sales. So I wanted to dive into to a part of the home buyer process that can seem quite intimidating for first home buyers. And that is this negotiation. When would someone want to negotiate the purchase price on their potential property that they're looking to purchase? At what point do you know that that's what you're doing? The point is when you're interested in a property, then you, you start to obviously go down that process. If it's a private sale, I usually say to a client, you need to get your jets on as soon as possible. As soon as the agent has the contracts and whatever it's called, it's called Section 32 here in Melbourne, you know, you want to catch other buyers on the hop. So if you are interested in a property, then you really want to get your skates on because I tend to find the good properties in, in any market, in any state, are always going to have competition. So if you can try and beat your competition 
um, and catch them on the hop a bit, get your ducks in a row. I always say, you know, go through a property at least twice and make sure that it's the right property for you. Go through it with family and friends. Go through it at different times of the day because I think you're making a, a really big financial decision. You don't want to buy a property only having gone through once and then, you know, you, you purchase it and then you're not happy because you didn't realise miss certain things and so I'd always recommend that second inspection Michael is crucial and get the family and friends support get some experience support people that have gone through and bought properties before that might be able to give you some some advice if it's a property going to auction then we'd usually try and negotiate three days before a public auction because I know in Melbourne that means then it's an unconditional sale and the vendor is going to be more likely to negotiate because it's going to be an unconditional sale. So it depends on the states and what the rules are in each of the states if it is going to option. But do your due diligence, go through the property twice and then start that whole process of getting information and negotiation. When it comes to due diligence, obviously, uh, I guess everyone would know to go and inspect the property and go through it. Perhaps they would know to go out a few times. But is there anything, you know, from your experience that a first home buyer should focus on or aspect of due diligence that you think perhaps they're not really focusing on that that one should? Definitely, you know, getting things in place. So having your finance pre-approved with a broker like yourself is crucial. You know, I'd never recommend a client go out shopping until they've got the money to do it. So otherwise you're, you're on the back foot from day one. If you've got to make your offers subject to finance for two, three, four weeks, then you're giving potentially the other buyers the upper hand and that's not what you want to do. So you want to have the upper hand in the negotiations. You want to make your offer as attractive as you can. Number one is having that pre-approval in writing. And number two is getting the contracts checked out by a professional conveyancer ASAP. So we'll usually send them through. I'll have a look at them as well for my clients. And within a couple of hours, we're ready to transact. We're ready to catch the other buyers on the hop. And that's what you want to try and do. We then would organise if we wanted to get a building and pest inspection report done. I've got three qualified building inspectors that we recommend that we can get them out within 24 hours. So we're not going to hold up the offer process. We can make that offer subject to that within 24 hours. And then it makes our offer quite attractive versus having someone waiting around the vendor, having to wait two weeks until they find out whether a building inspection is is, uh, been conducted and been approved. The other important things to do your due diligence with uh, looking at prices. So making sure that you go out, look at other properties. Hopefully you've gone to other options as well and get a feel for the marketplace. How does the other sales compare? Keep a scrapbook of all the other sales of other properties that you've gone through and as I said time's of the essence when you're ready to negotiate you want to catch the other buyers on the hop and you want to have all these things in place and have the right professionals there have that pre-approval from yourself ready to go so you're not waiting around and, and then you know it's two or three weeks and that opportunity passes. Let's imagine they've done the due diligence, as you've mentioned, and when you're sort of explaining all that, it totally makes sense why you'd be using a buyer's advocate because there there are a heap of things that you've mentioned there that I'm sure you've gathered over years and years of experience and a first-time buyer doing it for the first time, I'd be surprised if they could do all of that that you've mentioned. But in saying that, let's say they do do it, they've done their due diligence, they're happy. What does the negotiation process look like after the due diligence has been completed and you're you know ready to start negotiating? For me, I've always usually recommend that a first home buyer get someone else to negotiate so they can take the emotion away. So 
I tend to find that a lot of first-time buyers tend to get caught in the emotional wave. And if they fall in love with the property, they can often pay too much and let emotion take over. And that's disastrous. It could be disastrous if, you know, they pay 700000 you gave them a pre-approval for six fifty, and they've they've now overpaid the bank loan. Uh, you know, obviously give them the extra funds, and they've got a, a major problem. They're either going to have to come up with a fifty thousand or lose their deposit and um, move away. So, yeah, I think that's the most important part. Either use a buyer's advocate. I just helped a client this week buying Greville Street Pran, and she'd been continually missing out on properties. She was so excited when we bought for her, and I was able to buy a property before option using that Wednesday strategy. I catch the other buyers on the hop. They weren't quite ready and we were and we had everything in place. You know, that's what you want to do is, uh, as I said, use someone else. Use a parent or a friend that's uh, experienced as well that can take the emotion away because I think, you know, that having that emotion can really make people overpay sometimes, especially when it's your first property. So just making sure that you've got the upper hand in the negotiation position. The real estate agent is usually more experienced than you are in negotiating. So you ideally want to try and level that playing field a bit because it will come down often to negotiation between you and the agent. You know, you want to make sure that you're not sort of playing on on a very uneven playing field. And I'm sure there's definitely no one definitive answer for it. Let's say when you're purchasing a property that's for sale, if there's an actual price mark or listed, what would your tip be for a first home buyer that's in that situation? Is there like a rule of thumb as to, to offer something less or, or obviously you're not going to offer more, but how would you go about that particular you know, type of communication with the agent? Well, if there's a, a price range, which there often is, so there's a property price that's six to six sixty, then generally the agent and the vendor are going to want something towards the higher end of the range as a general rule of thumb or above. So general rule of thumb is, you know, if I was in that situation which we were this week, we offered something halfway, you know, something at six thirty, test the water got a feel for how hot or cold it is. And if it's cold and you say, well, yeah, we're not really there, then, you know, we can readjust and see whether we want to increase our offer and increase it up towards the top of the range. That's generally the way I I find that if there's a range, if there's a set price, there might be about $10,000 in negotiating there. If it's priced at $8.59, the owner might look at $8.50, so you might start an offer at $8.20 to $8.30. And again, just get to see how motivated the vendors are to sell. Sometimes more important, Michael, than price is the settlement terms for the vendor. Yeah, I was going to ask, are there other tools that you can incorporate into an offer? Find out, you know, ask the right questions. You know, why is the vendor selling? When would they ideally like to settle? What's their preferred settlement date? That's gold because if you can find out that, they might have bought another property. And if you can give them the settlement date, that they're dovetailing their other settlement and they don't have to move twice, that can be worth a lot more than ten, twenty, thirty thousand dollars for people to have to move twice. So so we did that with a purchase recently here in Melbourne in Elwood. We found out what the vendor wanted. We offered in the middle of the range and we were able to get it in the middle of the range because we gave them the settlement that they wanted. Even though they wanted more money, we were able to negotiate probably fifty thousand dollars off the price by giving the right terms. So Settlement terms can be more important than the end price in a lot of instances for people. Um, so settlement's important. Also, what deposit you're going to give. If uh, if you're a first home buyer, 
you might only be able to give five percent deposit and the vendor might want ten percent because they want a bit more surety and someone else offers ten percent so even the deposit amount if you had a higher deposit that's going to stand you in better stead than someone who had a, only a five percent deposit because if you were to default the vendor has got you know ten percent in their pocket to keep so deposit can be important but I, I tend to find settlement can be sometimes just as important michael as the price so find out that information you know why is the vendor selling if it's been a rental property if, if it's been owner occupied there might, might be a bit more emotion there there are all sort of things there that can give us uh, some gold nuggets when you're negotiating you're trying to get as much information to give you the better advantage when you're negotiating versus other buyers and, and versus the vendor and when you're putting these offers in you know in this negotiation process are you generally doing it verbally or do you recommend doing it verbally or is it in writing how do you best suggest that you know someone does that definitely in writing via an email michael so i usually would like to i call it sort of go fishing a little bit. I don't want to put it on a contract yet. I want to sort of suss out the vendor before we then get really serious. And when we get serious, then we'll place our offer on the contract of sale. That's sort of almost our, okay, this is our last offer, you know, take it or leave it scenario. But the initial probably offer or two would be via email. It would be, I call it that fishing offer to test how cold or hot the water is, go in at, you know, something a bit below where they're, they're chasing or where the owner agent has said they're wanting and then you know you can progress them potentially with the second offer you know if you're there then I'd always recommend you show how serious you are you put on a contract of sale attach your five or ten percent deposit if you've got a deposit check or you say to them send us your bank account details and we'll transfer money as soon as the vendor accepts the offer and the other thing I like to do always uh, Michael is create a bit of a fear of loss for the vendor and whenever I make one of those offers, I, I give the vendor a deadline and it's usually 12 o'clock the next day. You know, it's usually a 24 hour deadline or it might be five o'clock uh, this afternoon because I don't want the agent and the vendor to shop our offer around and give everyone else an opportunity to, you know, come back forward. So always give them a deadline. And I always use a little bit of um, that fear of loss at vendor you know, we're usually looking at multiple properties for clients. So we, I'd usually say, well, you know, offers here, if it's not accepted by the deadline, then our clients said that they're going to have a look at this other property and that will progress with the negotiation on that one. So it creates that bit of a fear situation for the vendor. Here's your offer. We've come up already. We've given you the right terms. So that's the way I like to negotiate to try and get us in a good negotiating position. What would be your biggest tip for anyone? And it could be, you know, about any aspect there of the negotiation. If they're about to enter into a purchase price negotiation, there's one take-home tip. Do that due diligence really quickly. If you want a property, you want to try and catch as many buyers on the hop so that they're not ready to go. So, you know, that get in contracts check. Okay, I've just checked in with Michael. My finance is all pre-approved. I'm ready to go. I've had my building report done. Sometimes I might not even do the building report yet, but it's subject to a building report within 24 hours. I'll then organise that once the owner's accepted the office. So we're not spending money doing a building report and then the owner doesn't accept our offers. So it usually make it subject to building report, but it's only 24 hours. So that's really important. Get all that stuff done quickly and speed yeah because you want to catch the other buyers on the hop you want to make sure that they haven't had a chance to do their building report 
haven't had a chance to get their contracts checked out, they might still be sorting out finance. And the other most important thing for me is pounding the pavements, doing the walking, going around looking at other properties, going around physically going to auctions, physically inspecting properties. You will learn so much about what you should pay. You'll learn about how your property compares to others. As I said, keep a scrapbook, folder, whatever you want to call it. Keep the brochures of the properties as you're going through, what they sold for, how it compares to this property, because that's literally how we value properties and valuers value them. And if you get the value wrong and you're buying a property and you pay 700 and the bank values at 650, you've got a big headache problems. Or actually, Michael, you've probably got the headache if they're finance. And also the other bit is, you know, when you're attending those auctions, introduce yourself to agents when you're attending inspections, give them your details. Please, we're serious buyers. We've got finance approved. If anything comes up off market or before market, can you let me know? Just ask the question. If the agent thinks you're a serious buyer and if you tell them we've got a pre-approval, we're ready to go. If you can find some of those properties like I do as a buyer's advocate off the market, and you're not having to bid against five other people, are you going to be able to buy them at a better price? I'm not going to go in and use, use an advocate. So, so there's some of the main ones. But, yeah, due diligence is gold because you get any of those things wrong and it's a big stuff up. So you need to do those little steps. The other ones there that I haven't even touched on, Michael, but if you're buying in an owner's corporation, I think it's really important to ring the owner's corporation. There's usually a certificate in there that gives you an idea if there's any special works or things happening in the building. But I would always contact the owner's corporation and is there any problems with the building? Is there anything I'm looking to buy in this building? Is there any levies coming up? Doing that due diligence. We call it a New South Wales Strata Report, basically. It's commonly referred to as, yeah. We call it an owner's corporation reported sort of uh, same thing. And the other thing is I'd also recommend contacting council and, you know, just ask them whether there's any developments, any zoning changes and that affecting this property that I'm going to buy. Because the last thing you want to do, which I've had other buyers do, they buy a property and they then realise there's 100 uh, apartments going up next door and they're going to be looking out onto a brick wall versus looking out onto a nice park view. So... Just those little extra steps that if you do those, you know, you can't always foresee what's going to happen in the future, but you can't can foresee what's already in place at the moment. So, but owners corporation crucial because you could buy into one and then find out that you're going to be hit with a twenty thousand dollar levy because the roof needs to be replaced. We've had major cladding issues here in Victoria. I don't know if it's similar around other states, but you know, checking out if there's all the cladding needs to be replaced with uh, fire combustible cladding. That's a major expense. So that's all what I call due diligence. Do your research, do your homework before you start signing contracts. And as someone who's done this tens of thousands of times, um, what's one of the biggest mistakes that you see people making when it comes to property sales negotiations? One can be that they're too picky and too choosy. They they're not as flexible and they want everything. And uh, I say to clients, you know, we might want the Taj Mahal, but we might not be able to afford it with our first property. So try and have your wish list, but be very flexible because, you know, I know when I bought my first uh, house in East Brunswick, I would have loved to have a lock-up garage. I didn't have a lock-up garage. I would have loved to have had a, a bit more renovated. I couldn't afford a bit that is renovated. So I just 
was flexible with it. So I think a lot of first home buyers sometimes are not flexible enough and then they end up missing out on opportunities and it ends up costing them often a lot more if it's in a rising market, like we saw in, you know, the post-COVID sort of that post-COVID market, they're missing out and then they're in that sort of fear of missing out uh, headspace and the prices keep going up and up and they can often get this hard and then just quit all together. So, so yeah, just be a bit more flexible. You know, if you have to buy something smaller or not quite exactly what you want for the first property, because it's not going to be your last property. Most people will move and trade in five years. I tend to find with my clients, um, their first property, you might need to move a suburb out. You might need to buy something smaller instead of, you know, you want two bedroom, two bathroom, but maybe compromise and go to two bedroom, one bathroom convert a laundry to a bathroom, have a little bit of flexibility there. Um, I think that's one. And the other one I, we harped on, I say, use someone else because I see so many first home buyers overpay. They get carried away with emotion. They pay 700 bank fees at 650. Then they've got a big headache and you've got a big headache dealing with it. That's the other one as well. So if they did their due diligence on price and they stuck to their budget and they had someone there who'd say, no, we're not going anymore. So they're probably the two big ones, Michael, that I see. So we always close our interview with two questions. The first one is, what's your number one tip for first home buyers trying to get into the market? And this doesn't have to be on negotiation and such. It could be anything. I sort of feel like I know where it might be headed, but um, just to ask the question, what would your number one tip would be for first home buyers? Be prepared to walk away and, and stick to your budgets. So, you know, I remember 1995 when I bought that first house, I missed out on two houses previous to that, but I stuck to my budget. I made sure that I didn't get carried away. I ended up getting a better house with the third house than the first two I missed out on. And, you know, the first two I was devastated. You can't sleep. You're tossing and turning. Should I have paid more? Should I have gone up? The goal there is there's always going to be another opportunity out there. We don't live in a marketplace where there's only one house. And if you miss out on that house, you've got no other opportunities. So so I think that's probably my my biggest tip for buyers overall, first home buyers, is, you know, there's always going to be another one. If you miss out on it, like I did, the third one was actually so much better than the first two. I was so glad I missed out on the first two again. But I waited and waited and waited for the right opportunity, the right price. So that would be my, my one, you know, don't sort of get disheartened as well because, you know, it took me a year to buy that first property. I, I searched from 1994 to 1995 and sometimes it can be disheartening. You sort of go, oh, you know, yeah, we're out this weekend again. I was going out with my beautiful mum and it was taking me out and we are going out every week. And But I put the prices back to front by the end of that. But I was doing my due diligence. I was recording the prices. We were going to auctions. So, yeah, do that. And as I said, do your, do the hard yards. You know, it's not an easy process the first time. Go out there, see as many properties as you can. Go to as many auctions as you can. If there's an auction down the road, it's a property that it's not even in your budget. Go and see it. Get some experience. See how the auctions run. See how that all works because... The more experience you have, it's only going to benefit you with this purchase and other, you know, property purchases in the future. And I think uh, if you if you have that budget and you can stick to it, it does take that element of emotion out of it because you're acting now with a bit of reason as opposed to just, you know, how you feel about something. And overall, that could potentially occur when you're negotiating or purchasing that first property. Yeah, and sometimes be flexible. You might go up a few thousand dollars, but don't go up a hundred thousand. You know, if you've got a pre-approval to this limit, 
then there's a little bit of flex. One of my little tips it works really well. I, when I'm bidding at auctions, I'll try and get to the even numbers first. So most people end at 650, 660, 670, 700, 710. So I try and bid to those numbers first so that I get there that mentally already this other person might be at their limit. They've got to go over. They've got to go over now. And I always end my budgets and offers in uneven numbers. Now, maybe I'm a bit dyslexic, but it actually works. So instead of going in auction with 700, I'd go in with 703 or 708, or, and I tell my clients to do the same because I'm going to try and play the getting to the round numbers game first. And even when you put an offer in, if you put an offer in at 703,000, I can say to the vendor and the agent, look, we've really pushed ourselves out to the last dollar. It looks like it's an offer that's been extended versus 700. So that's some little tips that I've maybe learned from 28 years of, of buying and uh, that, yeah, ended in an uneven number. And also, as I said, if you are bidding at an auction and you're in a state where there's auctions, get to the even numbers first, get to the 700, 695, because people will bid generally in those things. And I've never had a client who's come up to me and said, oh, my uh, limit's going to be 703,000. They've always said, oh, we'll go up to 700. I'm going, no, no, we need an odd number because I need to explain the psychology of it. Second question that we ask is, if you're a first home buyer and you had a million dollars to buy, where would you buy? And we can keep this to Melbourne in terms of your areas of experience. Where would it be and I guess why? In Melbourne, I'd definitely look at a, a house in the north, um, an area like Reservoir, where, uh, you know, so there was this area I nearly bought in back in uh, 1995. That's where I was out on those two properties. And I could have bought those two houses for 122 and 125,000. So now, you know, entry level for a good property in Reservoir, 12 kilometres north of Melbourne CBD is around a million dollars. You know, you can, you can get in 850 to, to a million. So it is still a good area because it's great bang for buck in terms of like, if you're on the same distance to the city, and um, you'd be in Brighton and the median house price would be three and a half million dollars south where the beach is. So similar distance, you're about half an hour from the city. So I think it still gives great bang for buck um, with the price range that it's got. The other area that I look in would be sort of further down the coast. We've got a lot of people now in Melbourne working hybrids. So they might work from home a couple of days a week and only have to travel into work a couple of days a week. So um, an area like Germana on the Mornington Peninsula, is about a, an hour's drive from Melbourne now. It's got great freeways, great peninsula link all the way through, and you can enjoy the beach lifestyle, the water views, without you know having to go through all the congestion that some people could be driving on many of those freeways and take them an hour to get home every day and and not have you know water at, at your doorstep. So I think again, value for money is great. It's an area that's gone up. I think when COVID hit, it went up 40%, the Mornington Peninsula suburbs, including Germana. But I still think it's got great bang for buck because you've got that beach lifestyle. And I've got a, a holiday place and I sort of live between the two. I live in, in, in Melbourne Beach and um, down that way. And when you're near water, you've got a great lifestyle. And also, if you're looking at investing, a million dollars is essentially an investment. You want your million dollars to go up in value and get some great capital growth. So, so I think both of those areas would uh, give great bang for buck in 10 years' time. Um, as I said, you're never going to buy a reservoir for that 122000 that I nearly bought in 1995. <laughs> you know, got up 7-8 fold in uh, 28 years. So busy. that's some tips there on different areas that, uh, that might work in Melbourne. 
I like you gave us some suburbs there because so often I'll ask that question and I'll go, well, it depends on the brief of the client. And that's that's also a good answer. But I like that you've actually pinpointed two suburbs and, and explained why. And, and I think they're great. And I think focusing on that capital growth is obviously the way when it comes to property. So, so definitely agree with you on that one. And Lance King, just another little tip for the first home buyers, if you can buy something that's got a bit of land, even if it's got a small courtyard, versus buying a nice, shiny, ritzy apartment in a big, high-priced tower with no land, all you're buying is airspace. And I don't know anyone that's made money out of airspace buying airspace. They'll make money out of buying land. If you're going to buy an apartment um, or a unit, try and buy one that's got some land. So you know, we love the villa units. We call them here in Melbourne. It's a, a small bit of a courtyard outside. You know, land is king. Land appreciates buildings appreciate so again it's a, a great little tip there you know all those properties there the, the house and reservoir and the house in Germania, the land's really the thing that's gone up from 122,000 up to a million the, the house has got older and depreciated yeah got it well thank you so much for joining us on the show today frank where can our listeners find you if they want to learn more well, they can find us um, online on our website. Uh, so our company name is Advantage Property Consulting. Uh, so advantageproperty.com.au or lowercase. They can jump on there. They can send us an email or they can contact our office. And uh, we'd love to assist them if they're looking to buy or sell in Melbourne. We'd hope uh, that we can provide you know, expert advice and, and help along the way. Thanks so much for joining me on the show today, Frank. Thanks, Michael. It was a pleasure and I look forward to speaking to you again. You've been listening to The Home Run, your guide for buying your first home in Australia. This podcast was produced by Lendstreet. Lendstreet is a mortgage broker and home loan specialist that helps first home buyers find the right loan to meet their needs. We know applying for a loan can be overwhelming and complex, so we help guide and support first home buyers through the process from start to finish. To find out more, head to our website, lendstreet.com.au. We've also put a link in the show notes. To make sure you don't miss an episode of The Home Run, be sure to subscribe to or follow the show in your podcast app. And while you're there, please leave us a five-star review. It really helps others find the show. I'm Michael Nasser, and we'll be back next episode covering another step on the journey to owning your first home.